We all know the world of energy and natural resources is changing fast. People are demanding action on the climate crisis. Businesses and politicians are throwing their weight behind the energy transition. And technology is reshaping the world as we know it. But we must ensure the result doesn't become too complex and too confusing. That's where the Climate Transition Podcast comes in. In this series, DLA Piper's Energy and Natural Resources team speaks to special guests to help you make sense of it all. My name is Natasha Luther-Jones. I'm the global co-chair of the Energy and Natural Resources sector here at DLA Piper. I'm also co-head of our International Sustainability and ESG offering. And I am your host for the series. As the provider of legal services to COP26, we had a number of our energy and sustainability team members in Glasgow. One of my partners was Andreas Gunst, and while at the conference, he spoke to the founder of the Conduit Club on the potential of green hydrogen as a clean and renewable energy source, as well as the use of carbon capture. As the buzz around green hydrogen continues to grow, they discuss the latest developments in hydrogen, as well as carbon capture, utilisation and storage technology, and the ways in which government and business must collaborate to accelerate the transition to a decarbonised energy sector. This episode is a recording of that session. Hello and welcome to Fast and Fair, the climate transition podcast. I'm Lee Beck, an international director at the Cleaner Task Force. We're a climate NGO focusing on innovation and advanced decarbonization technologies such as methane. Shout out to our methane team for helping ratchet up global ambition and pulling together more than 100 countries for the global methane pledge on Tuesday, as well as carbon capture, hydrogen, geothermal, and other technologies. I'm subbing today for Paul Fensil, co-founder of The Conduit, a diverse community of people passionate about positive impact. This episode is produced in collaboration with DLA Piper and recorded at The Conduit Studio here at COP26 as part of a series exploring the role of law in responding to climate change. Throughout this series, we're speaking to experts on climate justice and litigation, policymaking, human rights, finance, and carbon literacy to understand how business, government, and the third sector can work together to speed up the transition to a just and sustainable future. My guest today is Andreas Gunst, a climate change and energy regulatory and finance attorney and a partner at DLA Piper. Andreas is a member of DLA Piper's SESG steering committee. He also started his work in carbon markets in 2006 in climate change capital and has advice on a wide variety of emissions reductions and renewable energy projects since then. He also acted as counsel to the several industry organizations such as the European Federation of Energy Traders, the Carbon Markets and Investors Association, and Rex International on standard documentation for the trading of emissions allowances, renewable energy certificates, and offsets. Andreas is currently working on a number of carbon capture and storage and use projects in the UK and Europe, and the certification, trading, and recognition of green hydrogen.
Andreas is currently working on a number of carbon capture and storage and use projects in the UK and Europe, and the certification, trading, and recognition of green hydrogen. Welcome, Andreas. It's such an honor to have you here. So you join me today to talk um, one about some of my favorite topics, hydrogen and carbon capture and storage technologies in decarbonizing the energy and industrial sectors. Both of them are a vital element uh, on the path for net zero. Um, and the buff about both of them is really um, picking up speed, incredible speed, especially here at COP26. So tell me a little bit, why should we be particularly excited about carbon capture and hydrogen potential um, to decarbonize industry and energy at this point in history? Yeah, <clears throat> th th thanks very much for having me. And it's sort of equally exciting to talk um, with you about that. So, so I think, um, you know, looking back a few years, in fact, my, my first carbon capture and storage project has been here in the UK, um, it, you know, in and about sort of 2009, 2008, uh, with the power fuels project then, which was sort of a Colbert methane project with carbon capture and storage, one that had originally funding from the EU Commission. I, I think it's been sort of a long way coming and obviously with uh, the dip in the carbon markets um in you know the, the early 2010s obviously we, we sort of unfortunately had a period where actually this this technology which was always dubbed to be a very very important um part of the overall picture of um reducing co2 and and, and actually sort of links into so, so many different uh, abatement possibilities i uh, just didn't get off the ground and it's really encouraging to see that um, especially here in the UK, where we now have a number of cluster um, projects. Uh, we're working on one at the moment, Humber and uh, Teesside, uh, but also in many other countries, uh, especially in Europe, a number of um, you know, port-related projects. Antwerp is one of them. Uh, Germany has a number as well. And nearly every country is sort of looking into carbon capture and storage at the moment. So it's the right message. It just feels like the right message, the right time at the moment. Uh, and uh, as I said, in the combination with, with hydrogen, that's why it's now carbon capture and utilization or use um, and storage projects. It's just a really great technology opening up um, a lot of different possibilities also for hydrogen. Yeah, fantastic. Um, you just mentioned it, deep decarbonization hubs. The UK is a leader. Indeed, UK Committee on Climate Change told us um, carbon capture is not an option. It's a necessity for net zero. But you also touched on hydrogen. So so how is this related? How can? How, what's the role of carbon capture in producing hydrogen? What are our options to produce hydrogen, perhaps? And also, how can they help... Um, decarbonize these industrial clusters, help safeguard jobs. Would love to drill a little bit deeper into the, those questions. Yeah, I mean, we just talked about one of the clusters here in the UK, and I think it's a good example to show how really um, the, the different areas of um, power production, also, you know, energy intensive or carbon intensive production coupled with um, carbon capture and storage and also you know, the potential of utilizing uh, blue hydrogen or even green hydrogen um, in, in the process actually brings it all together. It's that possibility to either where you have the need uh, to actually add uh, carbon um, to um, the, the, the production of a product, for instance, in order, for instance, to create as asynthetic fuel and, and take sort of hydrogen, um, you know, further than it's just possible at the moment with, with a pipeline, 
Um, it's just a just a very good combination, clearly uh, also for the possibility to uh, decarbonize uh, for the development of green hydrogen and uh, bringing that in, bringing it in a cluster. And I think you know everybody sort of looking at these cluster projects at the moment is is just a very very good opportunity to. Um, you know, combine the respective strength of the different uh, technologies and, and areas. Yeah, fantastic. So I think there's a lot of projects on the horizon. You said carbon, we said carbon capture projects, I think more than around 45 in Europe, including um, the UK, many more in hydrogen, green and uh, blue hydrogen, of course. So what is really needed to, to in terms of infrastructure investments and or in general, in terms of infrastructure to really scale these technologies, to commercialize these technologies? It's, it's as always when you try to develop a new area. And in fact, um, you know, we've talked about this um, at, at the start um, of the podcast. It, it, you know, it's been coming for a long time. Uh, in in the area of carbon capture and storage, um, you, you need to create the right business case for it. And I, I think this is still where, um, you know, especially some countries um, are still scratching their heads around, okay, how do you actually sufficiently incentivize private sector investment into these projects? Clearly, there needs to be a, a regulatory framework around it that sort of determines how you would use these networks, how you get access to these networks, how you fund the networks, but the sort of little, um, you know, bits in in uh, the, the overall um, jigsaw, if you like, of of that overall cluster uh, idea, which is still quite uncertain at the moment. One one of them usually is the question of, um, you, you know, how do you how do you actually value um, the use uh, of of that infrastructure where the carbon price definitely is moving up and down. So. Um, so unlike other, you know, pipeline-based infrastructures like gas, for instance, um, you know, because it doesn't, the CO2 as such doesn't have a value, it's an environmental liability. Um, how do you value that and how you therefore sort of set the pricing? Or, or does it just need to be an entirely different pricing model for these types of infrastructure? Um, another area that also sort of frequently comes up is just the question around who actually has got the responsibility and the liability we have um, an EU emissions trading scheme, we've got a UK emissions trading scheme, all of those are um, effectively installation focused. So, so the, the ones that have the regulatory obligation are the installations. Now, um, that doesn't quite sort of match up with the with the idea of, you know, an infrastructure where it's being transported, where it's being stored. Clearly, there, there are some ideas about, and especially uh, the UK has gone quite a long way in terms of determining what that long-term liability would be and how that might transfer also to the state. Um, but but there's still that that sort of interaction between uh, the concept of installation-based commitments and liability versus how does it all work once sort of the, an installation gives that to a pipeline, gives that to storage, that still needs to be fine-tuned uh, and 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 clarified. But uh, all of those are elements that clearly, um, um, you know, have been thought about in the past, but it's just a matter of uh, now, uh, you know, proving the concept, if you like, in, in these cluster projects and showing how you bring it all together in terms of a commercial structure. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so many things that I want to talk about with you today. Um, in in what you were describing, so maybe are there any specific cluster or projects uh, in the carbon capture and hydrogen space that you would describe as specific success examples, or that you're personally really excited about? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, I'm 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 actually very excited about uh, all of the projects we're working on, um, and and they are really quite quite different uh, in structure. You know, some of them are are really sort of very, um, you know, closed um, um, clusters. Um, some of them are actually really thinking about um, you know using existing infrastructure trying to ship instead of trying to transport via pipeline. So there's loads of different, and this is really what, what, you know, why one can be excited about different projects at the moment. There are um, so, so many different approaches to trying to make carbon capture, storage, and use possible, but also workable, and the, the way in which that can be commercialized. So, so, so I think I wouldn't want to single out one, one project. I think, as I said, sort of Humber and Teesside, uh, which have been selected um, among the first clusters in the UK is is, is a very good one um, to look at, and certainly one that I think will will um, produce a, a lot of good um, experience. Uh, there's also other projects. Um, I mentioned Germany before, sort of Belgium with with Antwerp, um, and and a few other sort of port-based projects um, that are really really interesting, really exciting. Equally. Um, I think there are um, a few projects that are really um, quite interesting from a regulatory uh, angle. I think Germany, as you, as you may know, sort of introduced um, an incentive mechanism under the German um, renewables subsidy regime, the EEG, where um, there's a sort of a process around how with, with coupled um, guarantees of origin, you actually can demonstrate green hydrogen. That obviously is more on the hydrogen side, but it sort of plays also equally into... Uh, the, the question of how you commercialize and how you combine carbon capture and storage uh, with um, hydrogen uh, production in those clusters and how you need to set up the overall contractual structure to make that work and to really demonstrate uh, you know the the the, the underlying uh, production method and therefore the the question of whether it's blue hydrogens green hydrogen or, or similar yeah absolutely again so many things I think you know one um area that I do want to highlight here as you touched upon is the versatility of carbon capture and hydrogen. They're really, um, carbon capture can help us produce the clean energy, clean energy vector hydrogen. It can also help us reduce process emissions directly from industrial sectors. Steel and cement is one example. It's actually uh, the main road to decarbonize cement. Carbon capture and hydrogen form the main two pathways to decarbonize steel production, but there's also opportunities in the power sector, negative emissions. So really, there's not just one project that we can single out because it really comes down to a versatility of sectors that we can, or diversity of sectors that we can decarbonize with these technologies. So um, you touched on um, the EEG and, and hydrogen certification. From, from my perspective, the EEG is actually one of the most successful innovation policies globally because, of course, it helped us to commercialize solar and made available solar at lower cost. So I'd love to, to hear your perspective. Are there any policy initiatives that you think are extremely promising in, the Euro in Europe or the UK to help us commercialize these projects not, or these technologies, not just going having a couple of demonstration projects, but really building multiple hydrogen facilities, multiple carbon capture facilities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> again, we sort of when you, when you look at it, European, UK, um, and also sort of global scale, if you like, there's lots of different approaches at the moment uh, to um, supporting um, these projects. Um, I think the key always is that you find a structure 
um, where you, you can over time integrate that commercial structure into into the general market. And for me, that always means should be able to, um, you know, adjust it, but also align it to uh, the carbon pricing mechanisms that you've got in that country. You also align it to, um, you know, where, where it's sort of related to an additional commodity like hydrogen, uh, that you do achieve a sort of a, a market price, but maybe with, with a sort of a top-up in form of a premium CFD type mechanism. I think what is absolutely essential is that we find um, uh, an adequate way of um, certifying the production method of um, hydrogen in particular. Um, there's obviously loads of different certification um, possibilities at the moment. There's, there's HISER, there's, you know, guarantees of origin based. There are um, other certificate schemes like, like IREX. There are also uh, underlying schemes, uh, for instance, the um, you know, methane uh, intensity uh, type certificates that MIQ have just um, sort of created, uh, which are also helping in terms of blue hydrogen to, to show a content. But sort of bringing all of these uh, policies together, I think, um, is quite critical. And I think very often there's still um, a little bit missing around actually how you, how, how can you be sure when you, you know, produce um, something that is meant to be green hydrogen that it will be accepted as green hydrogen in a different market because there, there is no overall um, requirement at the moment that would actually set out, you know, under what circumstances something that, that has used, for instance, renewable source electricity or has used um, gas, but with carbon capture and storage, is um, you know is is green hydrogen as blue hydrogen, respectively. Um, and here, there's still a disconnect between how how that certification, which is so fundamentally important commercially, is actually priced versus sort of the underlying production methods. Um, and um, it's as much as I like the high cert scheme, I think the difficulty with this really. It does require a much more robust framework um, at the moment around um, how um, green hydrogen, how blue hydrogen is actually accepted as such um, in in the market, uh, and uh, on, on the on, you know, at the moment it's sort of based on a on a unilateral acceptance. But you know that's for for a lot of these projects not sufficient to make you know fifteen year, twenty year type investments. Um, and you, you need more certainty around the actual acceptance of those standards. And, and that's what's, I think, going to be really key uh, in terms of, you know, driving dr driving this market and making sure people can invest long term because they know it's going to be accepted um, as green hydrogen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, you're touching on a really important topic here in um, the hydrogen debate, blue versus green. What is the role of either... Um, from our perspective at the Clean Air Task Force, we, of course, see the potential of blue that can be un unleashed really quickly, uh, requires upstream methane mitigation, and, of course, um, very good certification standards that you suggested. Green is promising in the future, but really both have a role to play. And I'd love to see, you know, what do you think about it? Do you, do you see one or the other, both? And um, how quickly can we scale them, you think? Time always shows, and certainly with renewables, that you sort of think you've got a, um, you know, you've got a particular view around how, how quickly you can commercialize something. And once you put uh, people to the task, it tends to be faster. So, so that's in some way promising uh, for um, the actual ability to utilize green hydrogen. But 
Um, it's a little bit like um, certification also in the renewables market, if I can draw that comparison. Um, we have um, a lot of corporate PPAs in the market and they've been extremely successful. Um, uh, but when you look at corporate PPAs, you, you're actually not necessarily matching supply to demand in the way that, you know, in every settlement period, you know, your, your consumption sort of equals the supply in, in every half hour or hourly period. Um, but, but you average it out over the year. Um, we, you know, monthly issued guarantees of origin or regos, which have a megawatt hour denomination. So, so there's always going to be uh, you know, a difference between when you consume and when you produce. And if you were very, um, you, you know, dogmatic about it in a way, you, you would uh, obviously want, and you can, you can see that concept for 27 uh, type corporate PBAs, you would want to match your consumption with the production. But if you were to do that, you, would, you wouldn't have enough projects to actually meet the demand of corporates for, for corporate PPAs, and so you you would almost um, you know if you if you were to in, introduce that concept overnight, uh, make it extremely difficult uh, for corporates um, to to do corporate PPAs, and thereby um, you would suddenly lose all the voluntary interest that's there at the moment, which is fundamentally driven by um, obviously voluntary initiatives rather than, you know, a, a particular benefit from a levy reduction or tax exemption uh, or, or, or something similar. So, and it's the same, it's the same way with green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Um, if, if we, if you want to create the demand, I think that there will, uh, it's inevitable that, that you, you, you need to have blue hydrogen, which as you rightly said, can be scaled much more quickly than green hydrogen. Uh, and it, it sort of enables for the demand to be created that then helps to actually scale up green hydrogen. Um, and, and and if you, if you again, were sort of very dogmatic about green hydrogen in the same way you would be very dogmatic about 24-7 corporate PPAs, you would sort of kill off that that demand development quite quickly because people just just couldn't do it in a reasonable um, sort of time period uh, in, in which they're sort of willing to invest or take actions. And so I think it's really important that both are combined. Um, clearly, I think it's fair to say that, you know, you know, all else being equal, people would like to see, you know, more green hydrogen faster uh, than blue hydrogen. But, but realistically, if you want to create that very essential demand, um, you, you, you do need um, blue hydrogen for that in order uh, to, to develop that and, and, and for in carbon capture use and storage is absolutely essential. Yeah, absolutely. Um, totally agree with you. This was also a great explanation, I thought. So um, from a decarbonization perspective uh, in Europe, especially hydrogen production, ca carbon capture and storage, do you see first movers, some countries that are um, more on the forefront, say like the UK or Norway? And also, do you see um, a role for imports on hydrogen in particular, say blue hydrogen imports from the Middle East, green hydrogen uh, imports globally? This has been really intensely discussed here at COP. So would love to see your perspective on how this global hydrogen market, like global fuels market, market is developing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, definitely, uh, again, it's a sort of very discussion that we just had around, you know, developing markets. And I think it's when you, when you look at the, the possibility to scale up in Europe, 
um, it, it's certain that you probably will have to have um, hydrogen uh, imports. And, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm not an economist, but sort of looking at the, uh, the projections that most people have around how you scale it up and where the sweet spot is for it, I think it's probably fair to say that you can't, or at least what I read from, from the various charts um, and, and studies is that you can't really do it without um, a significant amount of, of import. And that then raises again the question that we were just discussing around how do you actually demonstrate that what's been produced is actually blue hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, or it's green hydrogen, right? How, how do you do that? And, and how does that also align to other policy initiatives, for instance, like the, you know, like, like the CBAM, where uh, obviously not directly related to the import of, um, of, of hydrogen, but, but if you were to use hydrogen rails in a production process, then it's indirectly, again, sort of relevant for, for products that are being uh, imported. But the certification piece for me is, is the sort of the real, the real key. And, and we've, we've not quite found an answer to that, that yet, because uh, you, you're only ever going to invest long-term in, in either carbon capture use and storage uh, in in any exporting country, or in fact, uh, in you know, in, in green hydrogen production, if you know that your your product will be uh, will be accepted as green hydrogen, and uh, again, sort of using that example that we discussed earlier, Germany with the idea of um, a couple GOOs, it's it's a very very good idea in terms of um, basically demonstrating. Um, in, in a very strict way that um, electricity from renewable sources has been produced in production. Therefore, you couple your GOOs with your electricity supply. Um, but that actually makes it extremely difficult um, for things like green hydrogen coming from, from um, uh, out of the EU or even you know, within the EU, to be fair, uh, and then to, to be sort of imported um, to actually... Uh, make that possible because, you know, in Europe, you can't quite make what's currently the exemption possible on the basis of market coupling. If you were to have wind generation somewhere else, uh, that will make it difficult and the same for, for imported hydrogen. So, so it's that sort of piece of, um, you know, getting it right between the uh, um, understandable um interest on the regulatory side to say, first of all, I want to have certainty that it really is green hydrogen. So I need to have something that's perhaps certificates in addition to uh, or coupled with some form of uh, mass balancing or, you know, notional path um, uh, for, for these um, to, to really be demonstrated that it is, it is green hydrogen in its production, but at the same time also allow a level playing field where um, you know this is being produced in other countries and then brought in and having the certainty that that it actually has been produced in a similar way and, and you're not putting um, you know green hydrogen development um, in 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 the respective European market at a disadvantage and that's where again we're sort of always coming back to that certification point but it, that's where really um, there, there is an important piece in the jigsaw missing at the moment, which um, is being worked on, but um, you need to have that in order to bring that all together. Okay, let's uh, take this point of certification and go from the supply side of decarbonization 
clean hydrogen production, carbon capture and storage to the demand side. Um, there have been a lot of discussions around the CBAM, of course, carbon intensity of products. There was a new um, trade agreement announced this weekend, U.S. and Europe um, are going to create a platform to um, to negotiate a framework based on the carbon intensity of steel and um, aluminum. The, the President Biden also announced the first movers coalition, a private sector buyers club for low carbon products, cement, steel, aluminum, chem, um, direct air capture. If we're shifting a little bit to the demand side, how do you think? How important do you think these demand side um, policies? and initiatives are to creating demand for low carbon products that are produced with um, clean hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen with carbon capture and storage as a decarbonization technology. I think there's sort of a few elements there that are really um, sort of driving driving the debate. And obviously, from a, sort of purely from a customer perspective, you clearly want to make sure that you know, you get, um, you know, the best product at the lowest price. And so, so from that perspective, I think this is a sort of combination of how can you be certain and how, how do you actually value as a customer uh, the carbon content of, of the product that you're buying? And is that, um, you know, is there enough sort of voluntary commitment uh, or, or does that need to be shaped in some form of, um, you know, industrial policy around certain rebates, um, you know, tax exemptions, etc., to really, um, you know, help help to create that demand or sort of nudge, if you like, uh, customers on the point of actually, you know, pricing uh, the carbon element into their consideration when they when they buy products. And I think that's one element. The other. Uh, the other element uh, is, is really that sort of level playing field discussion that we we still have with CBAM. That's also really driving the CBAM um, around. Okay, how how do you um, how do you create a level playing field where for some products uh, that have been created in a jurisdiction that has a carbon pricing mechanism, in the form of an ETS or similar, and products coming from from another, how, how is that comparable? And I think even um, we, we, we certainly, even though, and I find this a really, really, CBAM a very fascinating um, topic because CBAM is in development. It's not, you know, it's not policy, it's not law yet. But it's amazing how much that regulation already drives considerations that we see on the client side to say, well, actually, I need to position myself uh, and it's quite difficult because I don't quite understand how I could, for instance, make a corporate PPA work in the context of CBAM because it doesn't, doesn't really consider uh, that sort of element or the certification elements. It's, uh, it's sort of in there indirectly, but it's not very express. And, um, and, and, and that what's, is, is actually sort of making it quite quite difficult. Uh, I, I know that's sort of the, the uh, supply side as well, but for, from a um, uh, from from a you know car producer, for instance, that's sort of looking at buying uh, you know green uh, green steel or green aluminium. Um, I, th- I think it's exactly that point. How do you uh, how how do I measure uh, from from the producer what is actually being done on the carbon side? And is that is that sort of you know do I just re- rely on the CBAM mechanism? Do I want to have actually something or does the CBAM sort of need to align to uh, how we do that at the moment, which is sort of more around the 
you know, um, corporate PPAs, certifications around IREX, uh, other types of certificates. How, how do you bring that together? So there's, a, again, sort of a piece where um, you, you've got a good concept and it's already, although it's not even law, it's already really driving investments and considerations and structuring of transactions. But that that is very much focused on measuring sort of carbon content in a way that doesn't really uh, make it very clear how how you can reduce it, right? How how, how can you abate? And it for, for especially for, um, for for the evolving uh, legislative framework of the CBAM, uh, it will be very important to also expressly consider things like corporate PPAs, like certificates in in the overall context of of that and that that will then in itself again um help to create the demand because people then realize okay if i if i my producer uh, i have these requirements in terms of what you need to demonstrate to me uh for you know in order for your product to be green and you know i, I don't necessarily just need to rely on on the concept of of the cbam which is just for leveling the playing field of competitors rather than sort of looking at also from the perspective of of the customer and helping the customer to make informed choices, and again, that's a sort of a key element that um, needs to be needs to be considered. Great, yeah, I mean, absolutely agree. Certification is really the road towards incentivizing these technologies and also market creation. Um, I think there's a big debate right now, also in the negative emission space. Some of the the clusters in the UK are aiming for negative emissions. There's direct air capture on the horizon. Um, any thoughts on, on, on this kind of next generation of technology as the part of the carbon capture, removal, and storage value chain? Yeah, agree. Sort of very, very promising, very exciting um, the developments. Again, um, I, th- I think they have the same issues, at least sort of fundamentally, uh, as they stand at the moment with, with um, the um, technologies that are already in play um, around actually you know, to, trying to figure out how how they commercially fit into the picture, um, but but very exciting and cert- certainly um, you know the the whole discussion around um, negative emissions um, re- really really important also in the context of looking at the overall uh, process and the clusters holistically and, uh, and and figuring out what 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 is you know what what is the right driver here commercially but also uh, from a policy perspective. Absolutely agree. I mean, the International Energy Agency has shown that 75% of emissions reductions are expected to come from technologies that are not yet mature, that includes renewables, but also, as we touched upon, hydrogen and and carbon capture. However, these um, technologies um, remain controversial. And uh, that's, I think, from my perspective, also why they perhaps, in addition to policy flip-flopping, lack of government commitment, and an overall ignorance towards um, decarbonizing the industrial sector over the past decade, have not been commercialized. What's your perspective on some of the controversies that are out there about uh, advanced energy technologies in general? Let, let, let me um, to try, try to um, use an example to um, um, sort of explain that a little bit better. Um, I, um, I'm, I'm really, really excited about the commitment that was made um, a few days ago around uh, the, you know, the, the methane pledge and the methane coalition and sort of making sure, because methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And in fact, if you have too, too, too much methane emission in the production process is actually more harmful than coal. Um, 
But um, I was also thinking that, hang on, more than a decade ago, and probably sort of 12, 13 years ago, I was actually working on, you know, projects, then, um, you know, JI uh, projects and CDM projects to sort of patch up pipelines that were leaky, right? And, um, and it sometimes sort of feels like, um, you know, when you're on the motorway and you're changing the lane because the other lane seems to be moving faster and you switch the lane and then, you know, sort of 10 minutes later, you realized had you stayed in the lane, you would have been further ahead. And it's a little bit like that with with, uh, with this discussion as well, because I think, I think um, you know, you, you need to um, have a certain pragmatism. Of course, you can be dogmatic about a particular uh, policy and, and the use and, 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 you know, whether it will really uh, re result in, into the reduction or whether there is a better better mechanism that that is is you know in, in terms of um sort of its its purest form of you know reducing emissions better and um but but we're always sort of tr forgetting that actually we're already on the path and if we you know if, if if we continued on that path we would actually get somewhere as well so so you know switching lanes too often is sometimes not helpful and i, I think this is um, what I'm sometimes worried about in, in that debate, uh, certainly, you know, had we continued the projects that we were doing 13 years ago, I think some of the um, uh, necessity that was expressed around um, you know, doing projects like these now, because it's very important, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, would perhaps not be there had we sort of continued on that road. Um, it's a simplification of other issues why we obviously couldn't continue on a on a CDM and GI basis, but you know it, it it's important. You can you can die in beauty, um, and uh, and certain certainly a degree of pragmatism around new technologies, but also uh, transition technologies like you know blue hydrogen, and we're perhaps not not getting it quite right the first time. Uh, but what you're getting somewhere on, on the basis of that experience, you can then take the next step is is, is equally important. So pragmatism, um, even though it might still lead to regulatory change and mean that you haven't found the most perfect solution first time around, is is I think still still quite quite important in in making the change. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree anymore as a pragmatic NGO. Obviously, from our perspective, IPCC in 2018 made it very clear, the sooner we can reduce emissions, the better our chance at fending off the worst effects um, of climate change. Of course, all technologies must be on the table to enable each region country to decarbonize with a technology portfolio that suits individual, local, social, and economic circumstances. And um, so, yeah, definitely pragmatism is really important, especially as we know it takes 20 to 30 years to commercialize next generation technologies. You touched on the methane pledge. I said earlier, my colleagues um, from the methane team helped ratchet up global ambition, align more than 100 countries for this really landmark um, agreement. And of course, it's also really fantastic because this is one of the most important steps governments can take to shave off warming, right? So I'll invite you, Andreas, to join us at the Methane Moment. That's our uh, pavilion in the Blue Zone. And of course, everyone else who's watching. What are some other really exciting announcements here at COP26 that, that you just think are really pivotal for, for our road to net zero emissions? 
Yeah, again, I sort of I probably struggle to single um, one or a few out. I think um, you know every every sort of commitment and every proposal uh, that is being made helps, um, and and certainly um, you know put forward with the right intention. Um, what, what and this, this is not necessarily government policy, but what excites me um, also is is you know and. Just going back to um, the the methane pledge, uh, that you don't do not only have countries um, sort of you know m- making a pledge in that regard, but we also now have um, you know customers who, and in, in a very very short um, uh, time span, have really uh, said, okay, well, well, let's look at the the overall production supply of that methane, and, and let's sort of drill down into how we can actually certify the the methane intensity of that because what you what you clearly always need is for for every good policy and every good pledge you need to have a process or a technology that that allows you to to meet that pledge right and so so i'm very excited um about um um miq's um um you know um, certification system that really sort of looks at uh, methane intensities and supply chains to make, you know, to, or to help to make that pledge actually work because it ultimately you, you need to you need to have somebody to do it and and it, it will be the companies that, that either buy or sell uh, methane uh, or, or operate pipelines that would need to do it and and you need to give them a tool to measure uh, and and to to identify how they do it and i think that that certainly helps there's loads of others as well obviously i don't as i said i don't really want to single out because everything is is really off help and we're sort of at the position where you know you want every every help that you can get but um it's certainly it's things like this that really sort of excite me um uh, because you can then see it it isn't just a pledge but that there's actually a tool to make it work uh, and that's really important. Yeah, this has been a really fantastic um, conversation with you, Andreas. Um, unfortunately, we have to come to the end soon here, but I do want to ask you one last question, which I think is really important. It touches on everything that we've discussed today. We started off with deep decarbonization hubs, co-location of hydrogen and carbon capture. Tell me, if you had to tell someone, okay, from COP26 to COP27, here's the key steps that we need to make this reality, but also perhaps to 2030, what do you think are the most important aspects to really enable deployment and commercialization really of carbon capture and storage technologies, hydrogen technologies, negative emissions technologies? And then of course, overall, these are not just the only climate solutions we have, but overall, what do you think are the most important next steps for for climate if you had to close out our conversation today? I I think it's it's, um, um, making uh, on on the governmental side, enough resource available um, to uh, to really give um, the support uh, in in those markets. I think what, what we still often see is that there are lots of good policies, lots of good ideas, but um, the, uh, the, the the ability to help implement that also from the governmental side is um, is not as um, quickly developing as, as one would like to see in order to really help. Uh, and that, that's, there, there are you know, very um, uh, noticeable exceptions to that. But 
on on, on par. I think it's it's um, it's because people need to do it, and it's that sort of capacity building, and it's not just government, but it's also um, generally the capacity building to have people there to do it. And I think we had a very fascinating uh, um, lunch with business leaders on on the Monday. Um, and one of the things that really came out very strongly is, in fact, if you wanted to do all of these, you know, uh, wanted to implement all these policies, do we actually have the people to do it, the skilled people to do it? Because that seems to be a very big issue, um, certainly, and especially in Europe, countries with aging populations, do we have enough people to implement it? Um, tricky. And, and, and this is where I think probably sort of when you look at the, the root cause of, of some of the delay, you realize it isn't necessarily because there isn't enough financial support, or there isn't enough policy support, or there isn't enough commitment from corporates. But it's actually that that capacity building lags behind, and that is quite essential. Thank you so much. This has just been really an, really insightful, exciting um, conversation here at COP26 with you, Andreas. My personal key takeaways are we need to be pragmatic. All technologies must be on the table. We need to make sure that they're actually delivering cumulative emissions reduction, so certification mechanisms, as you suggested. We need to plug the skills gap. Really, really important Um mention that you made here at the end because, and it shouldn't be overlooked. We really need to enable a just transition and need to make sure that we can actually build all the clean energy infrastructure that we need to build between now and 2050. And then of course, last but not least, we need government buy-in. We need policy certainty, government policy and government funding so businesses can implement these technology solutions, carbon capture and hydrogen. And also, of course, as we discussed, um, reduce methane as soon as possible. Thank you so much for joining me here in the Climate Hub today. And we're looking forward to next episode. Thank you so much. Very nicely summed up. Thank you. Really interesting interview there um, with my colleague, Andreas Gunz. Thank you very much for listening and do watch out for more episodes relating to COP26 from the Climate Transition Podcast. Please subscribe to the series at dlapiper.com forward slash ENR or via your usual podcast platform. (laughs) 